Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me is Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to everybody, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. And in case this is the first time you've heard this podcast before, I just want to let you know Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, and this podcast is an opportunity for us to get all of the things that are going on in this industry off our minds. And uh, in particular, we've got a couple of test cars this week, and I think they're pretty important. What do you think, Ben? Well, I don't know if I would say the word important. I think there's they're interesting, um, and especially considering you know some of the juxtaposition that they provide in terms of how different companies approach the same segment. Okay, well, I will suggest that they are important. And I'm going to start off with the one car that I've te- I've tested this week. Uh, and I've actually tested this week this car before, but just not as long and not over the case of a week. I'm talking about the Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross. And I know by now you're probably already rolling your eyes, you're sighing. Or maybe you're, even you're turning writing. turning off the podcast yes, with clicking might, next or, yeah. or throwing your iPod at the ground and stepping on it repeatedly while screaming and staring into the sky and just yelling, why, why? Yeah, why? Tearing your hair and t- looking at that Mitsubishi tattoo you got in 1998 and, and, and feeling just horrible about the decisions you made in your life. I mean, there's also the that really nice Mitsubishi um, uh, Eclipse painting that you have, and you're like, "This is not a four-door crossover, man." <laughs> Did you when, when they announced? I'm gonna be. I'm gonna have a serious question. Everyone out there who has an Eclipse or an Eclipse painting on their wall. Or perhaps uh, an Eclipse picture in their wallet. When they announced they were going to make something called the Eclipse Cross, did you go out in your garage and just throw a car cover over your vehicle or perhaps turn the portrait around on the wall so no one would ask you and you wouldn't have to be reminded by the of the constant shame you feel by Mitsubishi's product planners? By them ruining a product, uh, a really interesting name or a name that has gone down in, in history as being a tuner-friendly compact sport uh, yeah, sport compact. So tuner friendly that this is one of the few cars that was in the first two Fast and Furious movies in two different generations. Yeah. <laughs> we had the the Eclipse that Brian uh, Earl Earl Spilner had, um, played by Paul Walker, aka Brian O'Connor. Uh, and then we had the um, the second movie, which had the convertible Eclipse, arguably the the, the perhaps the worst version of the car <laughs> ever to have been built. That generation's convertible, I think, is just kind of indefensible in terms of uh, performance and having it be in a performance-oriented movie. Um, it just well, it did it didn't it didn't it didn't sit well with me. But uh, and and then Mitsubishi again in the third movie, not an Eclipse, but the Evo. Plays a mm-hmm. huge role. So Mitsubishi at one time was at the throbbing heart of compact performance. And now they're very much not. <laughs> yeah, I, they're very much not. And what extremity would you put them at, Sammy? Like if you had to pick a bodily part to represent how far they've gotten from the heart of performance. It's like a forearm. A f- Or maybe a shin. Is a shin farther than your heart? Yes. Yeah, I think, you know, both of those are useful body parts. So I'm not (laughs) sure how accurate what Sammy just said is, but I'm willing to allow it. I think think it's an interesting analogy. Okay, but you are right. Mitsubishi has this incredible legacy of interesting and sporty vehicles. I mean, you mentioned the Eclipse, the Lancer Evolution. We also know 
Um, one of my favorite cars of all time, the, the 3000 GT VR4. Um, there's other VR4 products. I think there was a Galant VR4 and a um, and as well as some really interesting off-roading cars that have like won Dakar a bajillion times, the Pajero in particular. And Mitsubishi has a heritage, has legacy, and they've lost a lot of the... A lot of what makes them special in the past few years by delivering some really derivative products and things that just don't spout personality. The Eclipse Cross, the Eclipse, Eclipse Cross is important for a couple of reasons. It's wait, like, wait, important is a really loaded word. It's a very loaded word. Okay, and like so Tyrese Gibson is important to the Fast and Furious uh. franchise, <laughs> and he's perhaps the only reason why that Eclipse convertible in the second film is acceptable because that was his hero car. But go on. Okay. Are you going to make every reference to every Fast and the Furious Mitsubishi? <laughs> Only as you long can. as you keep forcing me to. Okay. <laughs> it's important because um, recently Mitsubishi was purchased by, or Mitsubishi Motors was purchased by Renault and Nissan. And going forward, all of their cars are going to be a mix and match of parts and platforms from that Nissan Renault alliance. This is the last truly Mitsubishi designed and developed product. That's why it's important. Um, and so it has to be, it, I mean, in one way, it has to show off to the world what a true Mitsubishi is before we can no longer get them and to to leave like that, that taste in our mouth of what we want in the next generation of Nissan Renault Mitsubishi product. If that's the case, then I think Mitsubishi should be burying the Eclipse costs as, as deeply as possible because if that's the taste you want to leave in people's mouths, if that's if that's the legacy of Mitsubishi is the Eclipse Cross and vehicles like the Outlander and cars that you know it took a very long time for them to be redesigned, I think that that's that's not a great legacy. I'm gonna say that you're you're already on a little harsh on the on the Eclipse Cross. It does a couple of things really really well, I think. Actually, I won't say interesting again. I will say it does a couple of things really well. And the first thing it does is actually. This is ridiculous. It's actually kind of um, eye-catching and it stands out, which is important in a, in this world of crossovers, like subcompact and compact crossovers. They all look the same, except for, say, the Nissan Juke, the Toyota CHR, um, and I think this car. This is a very different-looking... Well, it it um, kind of looks like a smaller Outlander. I don't think it really looks that different. No, it looks a lo it looks much better than an Outlander. The proportions are, are much more interesting, and I'll say that this car competes with um, kind of, you know, like compact, subcompact crossover in between or something like the um, the Subaru Crosstrek and the Nissan Rogue Sport. And this is better looking than both of those, although it is much taller than both of them. Um, the first thing you notice is it has this like raked rear um, roof line. They call it, you know, a coupe design. And again, this is something that's unique to the, the, the market segment. There's very few non-luxury crossover coupes. Well, and uh, there's a reason for that, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the reason. The reason is it has to do with practicality, I, I would imagine. Yeah, because people who are buying at this part of the market, people who are looking for an affordable compact hauler, they're buying it because they need to use it. They want to use it, not necessarily for style. I think style is more of a luxury thing. Maybe um, if you're buying a luxury compact 
SUV coupe, it's because it's your second or third car, and it's okay if it doesn't, you know, haul the bacon. Haul but everything. yeah, I'm gonna the, the Eclipse Cross. It only has 48.9 cubic feet in the back, and with, that with is all this, much less than what you get in a in a Crosstrek and a, or an HRV. It's like t- it's yeah. 10 cubic feet less. It's 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 probably 18 to 20 percent less than you would get in a comparably priced, similarly sized vehicle. So it, to put that in perspective, I think the Volkswagen Golf offers the same. Uh, roughly the same level of cargo space inside. Okay. And yeah. th- this, I, I'm assuming the Eclipse Cross is more expensive, less efficient, and not as fun to drive than a Golf. Yeah, it's it's about uh, th- that's a good way to to describe it. Although it's a little harsh to say uh, not fun to drive. It's actually more interesting to drive than I thought it was. Was well, it not as fun to drive as a Golf? Yeah. So let me let me continue. Yes, the practicality aspect of this car is um is not a high point. In fact. The rear seats, which fold forward um, but don't fold flat, they also recline backwards and they also slide. Now, if you fold those rear seats and slide them forward, you know, to maybe maximize your your load for, it doesn't maximize the load for. In fact, there's a little gap between where the trunk ends and where the seat backs are. So, like, stuff could fall in there and get caught and then you can't put the seat up. Absolutely, which is a huge... I mean, I thought that's an oversight in terms of design. Oh, yeah, especially for a family vehicle because kids throw stuff everywhere all the time. Yeah. So. Uh, I also have the fully, like, the most well-equipped model. It has um, some really nice orange stitching and, like, um, you know, leather seats. Um, And it has a lot of interesting uh, trim pieces. It's got, like, carbon fiber-inspired pieces. It's got uh, piano black gloss pieces. And it looks pretty sharp, except for the fact that if you touch any of these things, It'll probably be. It'll probably greet you with a creak. Oh, um, I, was, I thought I'm, you were gonna say fingerprints because that's a that's a big piano black thing for any car. It doesn't matter how much you pay for it. Exactly. I mean, fingerprints. I can complain about fingerprints on every single car that has a piano black uh, trim trim piece. So I won't. I won't go into it here. But the creaking is actually a huge problem for me. I find it most on the steering wheel where there's buttons and stuff, and you grip a steering wheel and you can hear it creaking while you're doing stuff. Even this car has power folding mirrors, and every time they unfold on the driver's side, it goes like that as it reaches its final its final position. And I think that's indicative of of some bigger issues at play here, some quality uh, issues at play that I think Mitsubishi could have um, addressed before delivering this product. Uh, under the hood, though, is something kind of interesting. It's a 1.5-liter four-cylinder turbocharged engine, um, and it makes 154 horsepower or 52 horsepower and 184 pound-feet of torque. Now, both of those numbers are actually kind of pretty good, um, especially when compared them to the Crosstrek, and the Nissan Rogue Sport, and especially that torque figure, which is is really good. It feels really solid off the line. It's at the higher speeds that this car falls flat. Uh, it just doesn't give you much more inspiration at that at that level. But I'll say it probably has a lot to do with the CVT. This has one of my least favorite CVTs I've ever tested in a in a new vehicle, and that's interesting because a lot of CVTs have gotten better. They have like these steps, these ratio steps that make the car feel less like a CVT and more like a conventional automatic at times. So they're not just whirring up and winding out, and then it makes a lot of noise and it feels buzzy. This one does all of that, which is annoying. It feels like a rubber band. It's groany. It's loud, um, and it's in its normal function. It's absolutely the worst part of this vehicle. 
However, there's a manual mode with eight selectable gears. The car has those big old Evo-inspired paddle shifters behind the steering wheel. And when you put it in that manual mode, the car feels much more lively and much more fun to drive, which is something I wasn't expecting for a compact, subcompact crossover. But it's it's rare that I think people who are buying this vehicle we're gonna, are going to be using the manual mode on a regular basis, right? Absolutely, like, for sure. Okay. Uh, there's also an in, in uh, an eco mode to help um, make that CVT more annoying. Um, and when you drive this car at its best, you'll expect about 25 miles per gallon, which Ben is not a very solid number. Um, well, in, I, I mean, in any universe, it, it, the all-wheel drive ones are 25 city, 28 highway, and uh, I think the front-wheel drive is 26, 29. But that, that's better than, say, like a Kia Sportage. I mean, if you're looking at the, the all-wheel drive version of that vehicle, it's 2125. So on paper, at least, the Eclipse Cross seems efficient. But you're saying that in reality, it, it didn't come across that way. No, I mean, I was expecting, I mean, I think even a Honda CRV, this is another car with a 1.5 turbo, an all-wheel drive system, and a CVT. Why is the Mitsubishi so far behind in terms of fuel economy compared to that car? Um, I will admit, the suspension, the chassis, not bad not bad at all in fact um as you and i have talked about in previous podcasts it's like pothole season we just got out of winter and there's and there's cracks and potholes everywhere um and in more affordable cars you can sometimes expect them to crash about and just feel like you're you're hurting the car or yourself in every single um step of the road do you know what i mean do you ever hear that especially with more affordable or cheaply built cars it just feels like good and you're like ow i guess so i mean if the cars are intended to be sporty I, I find that that happens more often because they're they're usually stiff it happens in the winter too though because this the suspensions car, freeze up this car did not feel any in any way um uh, affected by the road conditions and i was pretty impressed by that it also has what mitsubishi calls uh is super all-wheel control which is their branded all-wheel drive system it's a brake-based torque vectoring system that helps uh, manipulate the power to all four wheels and ensure that you know you are um, getting power where it needs to go. And you can actually feel it, like I said, in that sporty mode with the paddle shifters um, activated. You can feel it rooting power around and giving you um, a really nice feel on the road. But otherwise, there's two other drive modes. It's uh, gravel and snow, so I guess people will feel a little bit more uh, comfortable driving this car in, in you know, inclement weather. Well, I guess I'm, it just backs off the throttle, right? That's that's what every snow mode does. Is it, <laughs> it backs off the throttle and it starts you in second gear. And since this is a CVT, a it doesn't do that because it doesn't have to because it's 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 bad anyway. Like, so it's, <laughs> you know. I'll I'll finally sum this car up with uh, some of its features. It has almost every feature you can expect in in a well-equipped um, car. It has adaptive cruise control. It has blind spot monitoring. It has lane keep assist. It has a head-up display. It has a two-pane um, sunroof. It has okay, a seven. So you're saying, sorry to interrupt. When you say it has, that's not the base model, right? That's like, no. Okay. No, it has, um, a two paint sunroof. It has, uh, a 710 watt Rockford Fosgate sound system. Oh my goodness. Wait, how big is the subwoofer and is it visible? It's huge. Yeah, of course. And you can see it in the trunk. <laughs> so Mitsubishi um, and Nissan, I think are the two last companies that are all about the giant Rockford Fosgate uh, subwoofers, mm -hmm. and I don't know if Nissan puts it in anything other than the Frontier anymore. 
But the yeah. Frontier, if I remember correctly, has like a giant, I think it's in the center console. Yeah, yeah. And it's super absurdly loud. <laughs> and I know Mitsubishi's been in love with this same system. And they used to just, they would be like in the trunk or behind the seats or something. And you would just see it. It's it, Remember the RX-7 used to have that weird uh, wave sound system? Yeah, I think yeah. it was Bose. I'm not sure exactly. But it was it was in the trunk and it took up all of your trunk space, like all of it. I'm not even exaggerating. There's there was no room for anything else. And every time I hear Rockford Fosgate, this that's what I think of him immediately. Uh, I totally I can understand why it for sure is uh, that's the sort of system it has. Um, so I mean you can have it with so many of these features. It also comes standard with a seven inch I think it's seven inch touchscreen. Um, my problem with their infotainment system is that while it comes standard with the uh, standard standard with Ooh, I'm falling apart here. It comes standard with Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. There is no alternate navigation system. So if you don't plug in your phone, you'll have no navigation system at all. Uh, even the most well-equipped models. It That's because Mitsubishi has, drivers know where they're going, Sammy. I suppose so. Um, it also has no volume knobs and no tuning knobs. And it has a touchpad kind of like Lexus's remote touch system. Um to operate it when you don't want to use the touchscreen. So that is not my favorite function of the car at all. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to, we, we've been talking about the, the Eclipse Cross for quite a while now. I'm just going to straight out ask you, would you recommend this vehicle to anyone over any other comparably priced crossover on the market? Comparably priced is the biggest issue with this car, Ben. It starts, it starts in a two wheel drive model at around just under $24,000. The one I had, including destination, will come in at 31 grand. That's a lot of money for a subcompact or compact crossover. This is U.S. pricing, right? This is U.S. pricing. In Canada, it's almost 38 grand. Wow. So, so the answer is no. No. In fact, it's it, to me, it's poor value. There's some things that that it does very well, but as a practical crossover, you can't expect to pay that much when it's compromised in some in terms of quality and um, and ergonomics. Um, I would recommend the 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 Subaru Crosstrek over this car any day of the week, mainly because it's more practical, it's uh, more fuel efficient, it's also got many of the features that this car can be equipped with, and it feels less compromised. But if you think that the Crosstrek is too slow uh, and too ugly, which I think some people can like justifiably make both of those criticisms, the, cro- the Eclipse Cross might be a, uh, an acceptable alternative. Well, you know, it's interesting that you talked about compromise because the two vehicles that I drove recently that I wanted to talk about this week, you could also consider them to be compromises as well, albeit in different ways. Okay. So the I want to start out by talking about a vehicle that really surprised me, and it's the BMW X2, which, like, like the Eclipse Cross, is a sports activity coupe <laughs> to use BMW parlance. So it's it, they basically took the X1 which was their entry-level compact, subcompact crossover. And they made it a little bit smaller, not a lot, I think it's a few inches, and they cut the roof line down, and they're like, here you go. And usually when you do that, I get cynical about it, because as we were saying earlier, when a vehicle that was useful is made less useful and the price goes up, that's never really a good combination for me. But the X2 managed to overcome... My feelings, and it did that in a bunch of in a bunch of ways. First of all, I'm surprised by how attractive this vehicle is in the real world. I, Sammy, we saw it in L.A. I think mm-hmm. at the auto show when it came out, and I remember you in particular being very dismissive 
of how it looked there on the show floor. I mean, you weren't really feeling the styling, and I could understand that at the time. Uh, after having driven it and had it out on the road, in parking lots, in my driveway, I've kind of really come around on several aspects of the design. Okay. It's So there's a few things that are kind of hamstringing BMW here when in terms of how the X2 looks. Okay. First of all, it's, it's not based on the same rear-wheel drive platform that you would get from an X5 or an X3. Oh, so, right. Okay. Yeah. So this is borrowing the platform from the Mini Countryman, right. which is the biggest Mini. Uh, and do you mean the mini medium? The mini, yeah. And and I'm gonna be honest, the Countryman, not an attractive vehicle in a conventional sense because the proportions are kind of weird. Yeah. And they've had to make a big vehicle on a small platform, and it's yeah, it's not ugly, but it it's kind of, I don't know. It's it's not it's not a classic beauty. So okay. BMW is working from that, but with the X2. They've really managed to minimize as much of the front-wheel drive styling demands as as possible. Like uh, usually on a front-wheel drive vehicle, you have a super short hood because the right. the engine is mounted ho- horizontally. It's a transverse engine, and um, the the drivetrain it's all like tucked right into that area, right? So you don't mm-hmm. you have a short front overhang. On the X2, you don't really notice that because they've they've managed to use the the slope of the windshield and the downward slope of the hood to kind of draw attention from the fact that it's a little shorter than you than you would normally think of. And then when you taper the back of the vehicle, uh, the roof line, you also pull the eye away from the center. So it looks a little longer than it actually is. Okay, so they've they've managed to. I mean, that's an important part for any all-wheel drive or or a crossover to to get those proportions right. Um, and it's important to that they've got that they that BMW has addressed this. Styling has always been a concern, I think, for a luxury car. It needs to look good. Uh, why else would you spend so much money on it? But you know what? I've also heard people saying the same thing that you said, which they were so they were caught off guard at how much they enjoyed the X2, especially in comparison to say an X1 or a Countryman. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's a, there's another controversial styling thing with the X2 that a lot of people point out, and there's a there's a BMW logo, the Roundel, mm-hmm. and it's on the the C pillar, the the very last, just behind the rear window, and I found out that that's actually an homage to the the CS coupes from the 60s and 70s, which which had a similar look. Okay. So it's it, it it looks really out of place in the modern context because we don't see it anywhere else in the BMW lineup, but mm-hmm. it's actually a heritage throwback. Why they're doing a heritage throwback to a CS coupe on an X2 <laughs> crossover is, <laughs> is probably a philosophical question that neither of us are equipped to, to <laughs> no, answer. No, it's easy. It's easy, Ben. It's like this. There were uh, some guy was, uh, was looking at old photos of, of these, these BMWs and was like, we have gone our entire our entire history without respecting <laughs> these cars. We need to do this right now before somebody calls us out on it. Well, I, I can't. <laughs> I can't wait until they look at another picture and they're like, "We haven't built a Batmobile in a long time. Let's put crazy wings and a psychedelic paint job on this three series." <laughs> but uh, the the other the other area where the X2 kind of stood out for me was how it drove. And again, being based on a Countryman platform, I mean, nothing's wrong with the Countryman. I haven't driven the current generation i'm waiting a few weeks to do that but they're, they're not it's exactly a car it's not there's nothing to be excited about or hate about it just feels like it's a, a big car but on this like on a smaller scale it's very interesting to drive but it's nothing that would make it stand apart over other crossovers yeah so so with the i was expecting kind of the same thing from the x2 i was like okay it's gonna be fine it's gonna yeah. be f- totally fine and uh it's better than fine. The, the the vehicle comes with a a two liter, 
turbocharged engine and an eight-speed automatic transmission. There's no manual. You can't get any kind of uh, shift-it-yourself thing with this with the X2, which is kind of sad given that the the vehicle itself has that sporty look to it. Mm-hmm. But you're getting 228 horsepower and 258 pound-feet of torque. Those are decent numbers. Those are good numbers, yeah. They're they're very good for its class. They're good for any small vehicle, and the eight-speed is great. And um, all-wheel drive is standard with the X2 as well, so you you're avoiding. In Canada, it's standard with all-wheel drive. No, well, it's, even it's the U.S. Stand- you can get a front drive mode. No, it's it's standard in in the U.S. too, based oh, okay. on what I'm looking at right now, and um, that helps you lose some of the uh, front-wheel drive handling characteristics that I think some people are, are a little bit worried about with this kind of vehicle. You know, like maybe it plows a little, it's nose-heavy. That's still going to be there, but you can mitigate that by moving power around. Anyway, all of that to say, it's actually kind of fun to drive, and it's very smooth and it's very comfortable. It's it's entirely not what i expected i expected a very by the numbers entry level um suv but not i guess not entry level because it's a little bit it's more expensive and it's a bit sportier than the x1 mm-hmm. but i mean every time a company tries to do this you end up with a passing grade and nothing more the x2 gets more than a passing grade for me okay cool so i want to actually i want to bring up a, a further conversation here i haven't driven the x2 i have colleagues who have I have driven all of the last generation or the last um, year's models of compact crossover. So I'm talking about the GLA, the X1, and the Q3. And of all of those, the X1 was good, but you couldn't help but you couldn't help but feel that all of these vehicles were just compact. They were just like com- they're almost like compliance vehicles. They're like, oh, the market calls for it. let's just put like higher suspension on our our hatchbacks, our compact hatchbacks, and see how they work out. What you're telling me. It makes it sound like the X2 goes be above and beyond that feeling. And yeah, and 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 not only that, but even the lack of utility isn't that terrible. The rear seat was fine. Okay. Uh, and, and I remember I, I mentioned last week on the podcast that I'd been trapped in a rear seat recently. <laughs> yeah. That didn't happen in the X2. I I, I took some some photo. I was shooting the interior and, and I was able to move around as I wanted to. You get 22 cubic feet of cargo space. With the rear seats up, I don't know what the number is with it down, but that's about the same as the Eclipse Cross, uh, with the seats up. So it's it's again, I'm willing to give luxury crossovers like this a little bit more of a pass because you know they're second cars, they're not entirely focused on um, not entirely focused on practicality. But uh, you know, the the it's easier to get inside of than the X1. It, it's almost three inches lower. Okay. And uh, you, you have a lower seating position. It's it's very comfortable. Uh, it's it has almost the same. Remember, I was saying the rear seat room is good. It's it's almost identical to the X1, but it can carry 25% less cargo. So that's that's your big takeaway. So if you want utility, you buy the X1. If you want styling, or maybe it's a prom gift for uh, a child, or because you live in that world where you can spend 40 grand on a, a prom gift, then then that's a sensible sensible choice. Um, getting to the pricing, it starts at just under 40. It's like 39, 995, something like that. Mm-hmm. It, that's really not that bad for, I mean, that's what, eight grand more than the Eclipse? Yeah, that fully loaded equip, Eclipse glass. I've also learned, y- y- did you mention how much cargo space it has? Because as far as I can tell, it has. Yeah, I did. I actually just spent the last five minutes talking about it. 50.1 so. cubic feet. You didn't, I don't know if you said the number. Well, I didn't get the full number. I only got the, the behind the seats is 22. So it's the same as the Eclipse glass. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's and I think that's really funny. Um, so um, m- moving on <laughs> from cargo space, uh, it's enterprise. about 
it's yeah. about it's about six seconds zero to sixty two. I, I wanted to put that out there, which is which is fine. It's That's it's usable. fairly heavy. That's definitely it's, usable. It's over four thousand pounds, oh, wow. which is kind of crazy. For a small car. I know it's a small vehicle. Actually, you know what? It is a total digression. The all-wheel drive version of the XE, the Jaguar XE compact sedan, is yeah. like forty three hundred pounds. Oh my god. Yeah. So anyway, that that to put that into perspective, that's the same weight as a 300C. <laughs> Which is a full-size rear-wheel drive-based luxury with, sedan. With a V8. Uh, premium sedan, yes. Okay, anyway, back to the X2. So 40 grand, it, it's pretty decent. But my, my vehicle had a bunch of options. Um, it had M suspension. Ooh. Which is not it, – it's not it's not crazy. Like, it's not jostling you around. Like you said, we're in springtime. Roads are kind of harsh. I didn't really have a problem with that. Um, I, I It's part of the M Sport X package, I guess. Mm-hmm. And you get 19 inch, inch 19 inch wheels with that too, which always rattles you around a little bit. But uh, with options, you can easily push the car up to 50 grand. So okay. I don't know. I don't know That's if you want to do that. a lot of money. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to do that. But if you want to keep it around the base, then why not? I mean, it looks good. It drives nice. You get the same engine whether you're spending 50 grand or 40 grand. So depending on how much comfort stuff you want inside of it that's really what's going to um push you over the edge price wise awesome um that's really interesting like i said it it feels like a good step up from the x1 um and it seems closer to the x3 that okay like i remember telling talking to you about the x3 a couple of weeks ago and being surprised at how the x3 m40i felt on the road it didn't just feel like a like a pedestrian crossover it felt like a little bit something extra fun interesting um and and exciting and, and this, and this, this is the be... X2 is like a completely different architecture and yet yeah. still manages to be interesting. I also I misspoke about the weight. It's actually 3,700 pounds. Almost 4,000 pounds. Yeah, almost 4,000. You fill that up with some people and you're gonna be crest- you're gonna be. At but that's that's point. that's like you know if you're comparing to a hatchback, that's like three four hundred more than you would than you would have in a comparably sized hatch. And so you would recommend this kind of thing. I you know what? Yeah, I I like the X2. I think it looks good. I think it looks better than the X1. I don't think it's nearly as useful. Mm-hmm. But I really don't care for this type of vehicle, which is weird because I just basically lambasted the Eclipse Cross for not being useful. So it, I am I contain multitudes, and it is possible for me to hold multiple conflicting opinions. I will also add that this is one of those like uh, compact um, luxury cars from an established luxury brand. That if I see somebody in the road driving one of them, I won't be like, oh, they just paid the 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 fewest amount of dollars for that badge. Um, that they could, which is, you know, the way that you see people in a CLA sometimes. Um, this actually has a legitimate function, a legitimate reason, and fun reasons to purchase this car. And I, I'm interested, I, I'm excited to, to talk about that. So, uh, moving moving on from the X2, now, th- again, I, I drove another crossover. We're all crossovers all the time this episode. Yeah, the unnamed crossover podcast. So, I, there's another vehicle out there that ostensibly is competing for the same customers as the X2, but it does it in a completely different way. And that's the Alfa Romeo Stelvio. And this is my first time driving the Stelvio. Uh, It's, again, the same class as the X2. It's not a coupe. So it's a it's a tad bit bigger, not a lot. Is, I, I would consider the, the Stelvio in a slightly larger class, like a compact luxury crossover, something like the GLC or the X3 than the X2. But it's the same customer though. Okay. It's the same. It's the, the price is the same. There. The, I think the Alpha starts just over forty, so like forty three. Okay. And for that, you're getting another. You get a half second sliced off your zero to sixty time compared to the X two. 
because you have a you have you also have a this one has a um a two liter four cylinder as well, mm-hmm. but it's giving you two hundred and eighty horsepower. Wow. All wheel drive is standard. And you get another eight-speed automatic transmission. So <laughs> mechanically, they're very similar. <laughs> yeah. And in, in terms of execution, they couldn't be more different. All right. Uh, I, I I haven't driven. This is I, I believe the platform is the same as the Julia. Is that correct, yeah. Sammy? Yeah, I believe it is. So the this the uh, 2.0 T version of the of the Stelvio. It's kind of like you could think of it as the lifted wagon version of the Julia, mm-hmm. except. Whereas BMW has tried to compromise and give you, they know that people driving the X2, they're not looking for all-out performance. They're looking for something that's semi-useful, comfortable, has the badge, and looks good. At, no one told Alfa Romeo <laughs> that SUVs don't have to be brutally like performance-oriented at the entry level. Because there's a Quadrifoglio version of this vehicle, and I can't imagine how much less pleasant to drive the Quadrifoglio might be <laughs> compared to how the base Stelvio performs in just daily driving. This is a twitchy, bouncy, not necessarily rough, but stiff-legged SUV. Okay, and that's not anything you want. You know? I mean, a lot of people say they want crossovers to drive more like cars. There's a limit, right? There's like a certain There's line. There's a total limit. There's a certain line you don't want to cross when you. Well, I mean, even if this was a car, I would not be that into it because of how the performance is delivered. And again, so 280 horsepower, 306 pound-feet of torque. There's three drive modes: D, N, and A. Something in Italian, something in Italian, something in Italian. But basically, it comes down to dynamic, normal, and um, efficiency-oriented. Mm-hmm. In dynamic, throttle response is just—it's it, almost unusable because it's—it's it's very, very—it's like, it, like snap your fingers and you're lurching forward. It's hard to modulate. It's like hyperactive. Yeah, in in regular driving, it's not something you would use. I guess on—I—I I, I had the Stelvio on some very twisty back roads. And even then, it was hard to get a rhythm with the with the throttle. It really felt like it was just overcompensating every time I would hit the throttle. And no one wants that. I mean, it's not. It, it's it, in regular mode that dies down. You don't have as much of that, but you're still dealing with the suspension system that is a little too robust. It's it, on rougher roads, you're bouncing around. Um, it doesn't really feel sporty or responsive. It just kind of feels like an overload of information from the from the chassis. Okay. Um, can you talk to me about the, I mean, that's the driving dynamics. And Alfa Romeo is yeah. supposed to de- it, deliver a different driving dynamic than, than its competition, I think. They've always wanted to prioritize um, the way a car feels. And I guess this is what they're going for, a very... Uh, what's the best word for it? Invasive driving? Uh, I don't know. If it's inv- I would say nervous. Nervous. Okay. Uh, no, I would say the car feels nervous. It, it feels like it doesn't. It's never really comfortable, regardless of what drive mode you're in, with with what it's doing at the time. Okay. And as a, I, I took it on a long road trip, and mm-hmm. it was funny because it was actually when I went to drive the Genesis G70 uh, last week's episode. If you haven't downloaded it, please download it because it was uh, it was a good time, and yeah. that's a very good car. In any case, it was a long road trip, maybe an hour, two hours, uh, up into the mountains. And I, I, I got out of the Genesis and got back into the Stelvio to go home. And I remember feeling, wow, what a downgrade. Like, oh, that was wow. my first thought. I mean, the interior of the Stelvio mm-hmm. is barren. It's it, Spartan. There's not much going Spartan. on. It is Spartan. No. Uh, it, and, and materials or trim or tr- the way they've trimmed the car out is as if they just didn't have any idea of what uh, an interior of our car can look like in a stylish sense. They just said, yeah, it's, it'll be it'll be dark now. 
And it has a really terrible infotainment system. And I say terrible (laughs) because it's not responsive at all. When you turn the vehicle – so a long time ago, Volkswagens, when you turn them on, the infotainment system would sometimes take 30 seconds to two minutes before it was available. So that time is is behind us, or so I thought. With the Stelvio, I would turn on the car – if I had the radio on, it would it would be on whatever station I'd left it on. You can't change the station yeah. for like 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes. You don't know why. The screen is frozen. You can mute it, but you can't make any changes. Um, the logic for using the system is not great. You, you have often you, have find you, like, yourself... Have you tried to dial something into the... Like when you're trying to write in um, di- like addresses... Or, or phone numbers, you have to like dial it in like a rotary phone. It's so stupid. yeah, it has it has a dial on the center <laughs> console. You can't do anything else without that dial, and the dial is not responsive. Sometimes you'll click something and nothing happens. You'll click it a bunch of times, and nothing happens, or something else will happen that you weren't <laughs> yeah. intending to happen. And it's really sad because Alpha is owned by FCA. I mean, FCA develops um, Uconnect, which is a really Uconnect, good system. Uconnect is the best, and Uconnect should be in the Alpha. And I don't understand why it isn't. Like Uconnect, it would be. A, Uconnect is good enough to be used in Maseratis. Yeah. Why is and, it not in an Alfa Romeo? So that, that's just strange. Please, Alpha, put Uconnect in the Stelvio. Save us from what's there now. Um, it, it just it was not a satisfying experience. And I want to talk about cargo space. With the rear seats up, there's less room in the Stelvio than there is in the X2. Oh no! What 19 happened? cubic 19 cubic feet versus 22 cubic feet. Okay. And uh, I used the Stelvio to haul stuff. I picked up a set of tires, 15-inch um, tires, not even big. Sorry, uh, 16s. And uh, I got them in, but uh, I had to fold the seats forward, and they don't. They, I don't think they folded completely flat. I couldn't get them totally flat. And I did it, but it really felt like I was in a hatchback and not not in. And it, it, you said the Stelvio is supposed to be larger than the X2. It's like a class up in terms of size, mm-hmm. but it's it's just not. It uh, just doesn't for, feel like it for utility. So do I give the Stelvio a pass where I gave the X2 a pass? I guess I kind of have to, um, because yeah, it's the same customer. But it's a little frustrating when when you're buying a bigger vehicle that's less useful than the smaller vehicle that's actually a little bit cheaper. It's also much faster, man. This thing does 0 to 60 in 5.4 seconds. That's only a half second faster than the X2. Pretty, that's still fast. That's faster. Well, okay, all right. So in your in in the world of Fast and Furious Nine, when they drag race the X2 versus the Stelvio, <laughs> yeah, the Stel- we know yeah. who's gonna win. Yeah, spoiler alert. Espe- especially if Tyrese is driving. Right. But um, uh, one one thing though that I do want to say in the Stelvio's favor is people were constantly approaching me to tell me how pretty the car was. Wow. Constantly, like everywhere I went, and that's we'd go out of their way. This is a crossover. This is a, yeah. a hiked up wagon. Yeah, and uh, they would come up and be like, oh, uh, la la belle, mechanica belle, and all this, uh, these, these words that I don't understand <laughs> because I don't speak Italian. But um, it, it, seriously, people said that to me. Uh, there's a soft spot in the in the market for people who have a romanticized version of Alfa Romeo, and I think that's something the company really needs to exploit. <laughs> and it feels like they are. They, they, well, the styling, they definitely are. I mean, until you open the door, the Stelvio is a very it, – it's an attractive-looking vehicle. Uh, I just wish it drove better than average, better than nervous, and I wish it had a nicer cabin. It's, it feels like – like I said, it felt like a letdown coming out of the Genesis, which is – I mean, imagine when Genesis builds an SUV, how much of yeah. a problem that's going to be for Alpha. But um, anyway. So what you're saying is Alpha is kind of coasting on their 
um, on their reputation from of former years of so many different like years long ago. Is that well, I think that. I don't think so because I think there are only a few people who remember the Alpha. Okay. <laughs> I, I think the brand has a long way to go to get people to know they exist. That's always a challenge when you come back to the market after decades of absence. So if that's what Alpha's counting on, that's not great. I don't think that's what they're counting on. But it, it does kind of feel like the Stelvio is a little low effort. It doesn't feel like it breaks any new ground anywhere except styling. I feel like mm -hmm. they added the power without adding the dynamics to match it. Mm -hmm. And I was really disappointed. I thought it would be better. And so this is kind of a weird week where I had my expectations flip-flopped. I thought the X2 would be tepid at best, and it was enjoyable. I thought the Stelvio would be engaging, and it turned out to be just a handful, and not something I enjoy driving. Did you mention the price? This is about forty-one grand uh, or 42. forty-three, I think, uh, okay. with, with delivery maybe. Um, you can go up to like fifty-five though. Yeah. <laughs> if you want. Before to you get the before you get the quadrifoglio. Yeah, dual pane sunroof. If you get navigation, um, there's a, 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 a Harman Kardon stereo system. It had a pretty ter terrible stereo. I just oh. grouped that in with the infotainment. I figure <laughs> it's all the same. No, it, it's just you know. But there's adaptive cruise control, which I used. It was fine, I guess. Lane departure. It has all the safety oh. stuff. We gotta talk about ergonomics further in this car. Those ginormous paddle shifters. They're huge. They're ridiculously and huge. You and have to, you have to, you have to jump your fingers over them in order to use the turn signals. I don't know if you had the same issue. Well, uh, I don't have your freakishly huge hands, so it wasn't that much of an issue for me. But uh, I, I want people who are listening out in podcast world <laughs> these these paddle shifters. Imagine a full size dinner plate yeah. that's been cut in half and then glued to the steering wheel. They're that's, huge. It's not even an exaggeration. These are the kind of paddle shifters that Batman could tear off the steering column and, and use to, like, disable an enemy across the room. Yes. And, and like I said, no, they truly are in the way of the stocks, um, especially the turn signal. Uh, the, other, the, other, the other fun thing about the nervousness of the... <laughs> the uh, interior that, that links to the nervousness of the vehicle's driving dynamics is the start-stop button is on the steering wheel uh, in between the spokes on the left side. So at any time while trying to change the radio stations or use adaptive cruise control, you may turn off your vehicle accidentally. Oh, yes. <laughs> there is no need for this button to be there. No one needs to start their Stelvio that quickly that they can't reach around the steering wheel and push a button there or put the button on the console. No, it's right where your hands are when you're using the steering wheel controls. That had me nervous, too. Not just the nervous car, nervous Benjamin behind the wheel. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bad combination. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, anything else this week, Ben, that you want to talk about? No, I, I think that I think that covers everything. Uh, I, what are you up to next week, Sammy? It sounds, I think you have an exciting week plan. I have two very interesting cars. I have the Audi A6 that I'm going to drive in Portugal. And I'm also going to drive a Mazda MX-5 um, convertible with the red soft top. Okay, well, I'm glad you mentioned the soft top was red. That's an important visual. I believe people. that's the most important part that they've changed for 2018. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next week, I'm going to be, uh, well, I'm currently driving the Mercedes-Benz C-Class wagon. Nice. Which is something that right? the, the C300, you cannot buy that in the United States. It is Canada only for North America. And we'll talk a little bit about why that happened. Exclusive. And next week, um, I do believe I'm driving a rather large pickup. The uh, 2018 F-150. So we'll, we'll have that to talk to as well. Uh, talk about as well. 
Uh, just a quick question about that that F-150. Do you know if it's the diesel or... No, I'm driving the 2.7. Okay, cool. But uh, one more thing I want to add. I totally forgot about this. I will also, also, also be driving the brand new Veloster. Nice. I'll be the driving Hyundai that Veloster. the week following. So maybe we can hold off until then to talk about this car. Maybe we can because this is, after all, the Sammy Hajasad podcast, and it's totally about what Sammy wants to do. <laughs> well, I so, think it'd yeah, be that's... more fun to compare notes. You've got a couple of cars next week, and I've got a couple of cars next week. We don't have to bore the listeners. We're already bored of this argument that we're having right they're, now. They're <laughs> definitely bored of the autocratic way you run the podcast. That's that's this is not a this is a cheer tatorship, Sammy. If that is true. Please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha. Or you know what? You can tell Ben that he's being unreasonable. You can reach him at Hunting Benjamin. Or you can Or you you can email me the old fashioned way. Who the old fashioned way? At Benjamin at Benjaminhunting.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Unnamed Automotive Podcast, and unnamedautomotivepodcast.com is where you'll find all of the past episodes, along with links to reviews that we've written about the cars we've talked about, occasionally pictures of the cars we've t- we've talked about. And um, you can subscribe to everything right from that one central location. Your iTunes, Stitcher Radio. Spotify. Uh, Spotify, yes. Google Play Music. All of that good stuff. CastBox. We are on all of these services, and you can find them either on the service directly or from our unnamedautomotivepodcast.com page. So go and check it out, because next week is going to be a fun podcast. And get your subscriptions in now so that you download the podcast ASAP. You don't want to miss out. You don't want to be the only person on your block who hasn't heard what Sammy has to say about the Veloster weeks after Ben's driven it. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye.